Hello and welcome to the Regen Agri podcast, the go-to place to hear about everything regenerative agriculture. Regen Agri is an initiative supporting farms, agribusinesses and the supply chain in their transition to regenerative approaches. We do this globally with the aim of securing the health of the land and the wealth of those who live on it. For more information about our initiative and to find out how we can help with your regenerative journey, visit regenagri.org. I'm your host, Harry Farnsworth, and once again, I'm excited to bring you the latest developments from the global phenomenon that is regenerative agriculture. I'm joined today by James Lomax from the United Nations Environment Programme. James is a food systems and agriculture advisor in UNEP's Ecosystems Division and part-time secondary to the Secretariat of the UN Food Systems Summit. He has led pioneering approaches to global sustainable agri-food systems since taking on the rule in 2009, challenging traditional thinking on the integration of nutrient, waste, environment and livelihoods. Currently, James is partly seconded to the Food System Summit and is also focusing on sustainable land use finance mechanism, repurposing farmer fiscal support, regenerative and net positive agriculture and coordinating UNEP's internal work on food systems and agriculture. Today, we'll discuss UNEP's latest focus on nature-positive farming and ask how UN conventions bring about tangible impacts. With the UN Biodiversity Conference, or COP15, just behind us, and COP26 happening as we speak, there's no better time to be tackling these big questions. Welcome to the podcast, James. It's great to have you here. And you're also here on our our 12th podcast. So we've been doing a year, so it's very fitting to have uh, someone from from the UN here with us. Um, So thank you for joining us. Thank you, Harry. I'm very pleased to be here. I thought actually it might be just quite nice to begin with, James. We we had a bit of uh, your background there, but it might be good for people who are listening to understand how someone gets to that point and ends up working for, for an organization like the UN. So it's very interesting for me to be invited on this podcast, of course, to talk about something that I'm very passionate about, which is agriculture and, and how it can be a force for good when it comes to the environment. But as you say, I I didn't study environment. I studied tropical agriculture for my master's. And and, and it was really through a process of kind of understanding what I really wanted when I was in my early 20s, then really getting into the commercial side of tropical agriculture. I was was running a business where we we were growing and exporting um, vegetables from East Africa. This was just before, I think, this issue of... um, air miles came up, <laughs> um, which is, of course, I didn't really think about it at the time, but it, of course, is a big issue. You know, we're, we're sending veg- you know, vegetables, fresh vegetables from East Africa to Europe. But it was when I was doing that kind of work that I, that this issue of environment really started to come up and I started to get into sustainability, but also really push what sustainability means. And, and there was one key aspect that used to really affect me actually and that was water so up on mount kenya there's even though it's on the equator there's a glacier and um up until fairly recently there was snow on that glacier and on the peak all year round but even in the few years that i was um kind of living working in that part of the world or where i am now in, in nairobi kenya you did see that uh, rains were reducing. You saw that snow cap was reducing too. And I started to sort of really understand how not only there was this global issue going on where uh, resources were becoming scarce from a global point of view, but also the actions of of those people that lived in the ecosystem that was the Mount Kenyan Abadares, how their actions were affecting, you know, chopping down trees, damming rivers etc and there was also this real tension between big agriculture and small agriculture as as flower farms started to come up etc so so it was it, it was a process of really understanding i i think that we need agriculture of course we need it but we but we have to be clever and we have to be strategic i suppose in how we produce our food so that we're not spending or using our precious resources going into food that, that quite frankly, is, is either wasted or, or is not essential for our survival. And, and then the issue of flowers, I think, is really important as well. And, and, and that was, if you like, something that I haven't quite got to terms with because <laughs> that's a huge, 
use of natural resources yet yet it's being yet they're being flown all over over the world so so kind of going from commercial agriculture then large scale agriculture horticultural production in Europe for a bit um, it was then really the time to kind of think well what do I want out of life and and the sustainable development agenda seemed to be the right approach and then getting a an initial role at UNEP to carry out a project which then turned into what I'm doing now which is incredibly interesting working not only within UNEP trying to become much more effective in how we work together because we have excellent um, uh, parts of the house that, that are working on this, but also to see how UNEP fits in the UN system. So we also know that food and ag- agriculture are basically sort of, they are the remit of the Rome-based agencies. So the Rome-based agencies are the Food and Agricultural Organization, the World Food Programme, and the International Fund for Agricultural Development. So, so those, if you like, are the three main parts of the UN that work on food and agriculture. So it's fascinating to see with the summit how that is kind of changing a little bit. So, you know, there is a place for UNEP, the United Nations Environment Program, mm-hmm. um, which, which is the organization that I work for, to see how we can contribute to that effort as well. So it's very interesting to see, you know, yes, UNEP, is an important voice. It's it's the it's the voice of the environment, UN system. Um, but it's not just that we work on specific environmental issues, because we also know that it's economic systems that often drive the environmental degradation and the crises that we face. And therefore, it's important then that we start to get into issues around maybe industry, or in this case, agriculture and food. Mm. So we're we're at this really interesting place. Harry, where we're starting to see food and agriculture in the UN at least, and at the country level, I'm hoping, really sort of become much more than just the ministries of agriculture. It's now looking out to the health and, and environment as well. Because as a spectator looking into the UN network, it sometimes can be a bit confusing, I suppose, what, what everyone does. And as you've just said there, the, the Rome-based organizations are normally the ones who deal with food do you feel like the un is the unep sorry is is maybe able to position itself to be an umbrella for those different terms to come together a bit more to focus on this because it's become abundantly clear that environment and agriculture are completely locked in and linked together i wouldn't say the umbrella of course because what's interesting is that those are based agencies are significantly bigger than UNEP. I mean, really significantly bigger. Um, and we are a minor player when you, if you look at the kind of resources and the influence that, that they have. But, but UNEP is one of those organizations that despite our mandate, which I think is massively powerful, the constituency that we traditionally work with our ministries of environment, which unfortunately are the, often the weakest parts of the government. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to embolden them as influencers within their governments. But also we have to take that on board as a role for us as well as UNEP to say, right, we cannot be the be all and everything on, an, on a kind of um, sectoral perspective. However, we can ensure by working with the specialized agencies like the World Health Organization on the one hand, like FAO on the other, that environment is very much mainstreamed and is not something that we do separately, but we support them to bring environment into all of their work. So, I mean, you had a very successful, well, there was a very successful COP15 on, on, uni, on, on biodiversity and obviously yeah. you've got COP26 happening now. And it's, it's the measure of those uh, cops being successful how long how long does it take to see the success of those because there's a lot of people saying i'm going to commit to deforest you know reforestation and deforestation but how do you actually ensure as an organization like unep that these commitments are followed up on if you like there are several things like the cops so you've got the biodiversity cop you've got the climate change cop that if you like provide key performance indicators for countries on these particular issues. And it's for the UN, if you like, to support countries and sectors to try to achieve these targets. 
there's also the sustainable development goals and there are 17 of those that 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 are very much there within the context of these more specialized conventions too so i think these indicators are very important because they set if you like the north star now one of the issues that we always have is that whether these targets first step is to get these targets ambitious but also a way that they're achievable right so, you know there's no point saying that i'm going to next year i'm going to run the 100 meters under 10 seconds i could try but i'm not going to make it right so um and i could i'm sure after a year of training i would be a lot faster than i am now but but the point is these are un- unattainable targets so or, or that's the danger of trying to set unattainable targets so the cop 26 the cop 15 these are really important for the international community to set its stall out and say right we are going to collectively achieve x because we think this is going to be the best thing for our planet this is going to be the best thing for our country now this is where the un comes in actually to then support countries practically to say right so how are we going to work with you to achieve these particular targets and there are some countries that are that see it as an existential threat. So I, I can guarantee you now that some of the Pacific Islands are going to really be very active in how they work towards their the targets. There may be some countries where it's going going to take longer. But I think you do see, so you do see that um, targets do shape the policy. They do shape the way sectors may change but it's also there is all sorts of political issues in there as well that may define how quickly a country may respond so the uk now it's not a part of eu and therefore not a part part of the common agricultural policy may well be far more nimble and far more reactive and far more dynamic in how it responds to its climate and biodiversity targets say compared to a part of the European Union, who is locked into this common agricultural policy. So, you know, it, it, I think it depends on many things. Issue of, of threat, I think this is really important. So, you know, countries that really do see a, a threat being caused by these crises will act quickly. And secondly, it's about the, the political will and the political mechanisms that are in place um, to allow change to happen. Sometimes it just gets so slowed down that you kind of forget why you're doing it in the first place. Yeah, well, I imagine going to these uh, events must be sort of being in uh, middleman's probably the wrong word, but being from an organisation like the UN, it's sort of playing uh, diplomatic chess on a on a on a minefield. Yeah, and 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 you've got to understand also that there are many political positions playing out too. And that's what makes the UN so important, but yet so, in many ways, sort of frustrating. But yet, when it does go well, it just goes fantastically well because it brings a, cons- a, con- a census. So, so in Glasgow, I think a lot, of, a lot of good stuff is happening. Is it going to be enough? Well, it seems like it won't be enough just yet. But is it another step towards getting to where we have to get to? Maybe these increased targets these this increased ambition while it may not get us to the 1.5 maybe it's going to set us on the path that we can feel inspired to go that extra mile that's the stubborn uh, optimist in me speaking well, i suppose that you have to take that position otherwise it'd probably be quite a a negative place to work you'd always be feeling on the back but you've got to be optimistic about environment otherwise it can be you've got to be optimistic you've got to be optimistic optimistic and 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 that's why you know things like innovation that's coming up around things like nature positive carbon negative agriculture is, is so inspiring you know mm-hmm. and and it's and these are initiatives that have arisen not because UNEP went and created a big project with FAO it's it's there seemed to be some kind of demand for it mm-hmm. at on the ground and from from a sectoral perspective so so that's kind of why it's really exciting to see that there are some very very good and promising initiatives and methodologies that are coming up and will you as an organization then take 
a lot of the time you're giving the lead to organizations or to, to intergovernmental work but will you also take um, what's happening in the market and put that into your your work as well obviously it's a non-commercial thing you're doing but how informed are you from what's going on in the ground i think very informed and i think that's something that we as unep is trying trying very hard to make sure happens right so so one of our main well our main mandate is to work on science policy interface. So what does that mean? It, it means making sure that what comes out from a science perspective or what's being done at smaller scales that are showing proof of concepts, so showing that they work, can then be upscaled and be spread out, uh, disseminated to a bunch of other countries or other s- sector players. So seeing what's happening, making sure that it's based on real proper science I think is very important but then how do we do that so so unit what we could what we have done in the past and what we could be doing I think on this nature positive climate negative agriculture space is saying right what do we have what works what doesn't and how can we bring that into a set of principles or a way of working that can help shape the way big companies work, how ministries of agriculture start to shape their policy, etc. And, and, and I think that's critical to basically look at what's happening, look at what's working, but then take it to a place where people where where maybe a country uh, who might find this as a threat to how they're working now, that we could say, say, hang on a second, this is based upon maybe some work that's that's going on in, in your country. Right. So, so we have an ability to very much take that science from every country, bring that into a way of saying, look, this is built upon the region agri work. This is built upon the agroecology work. This is built upon X, Y, and Z and mold that into something which is universally accepted and then can help shape Fiji as it can South American countries as it can Chinese. And in this work with them, um climate positive uh i've forgotten the correct terminology climate positive emissions negative well we yeah carbon negative it sounds because because it's not just that we reduce the carbon footprint of that particular crop but we're using the system itself the very process of growing crops and keeping animals to sequester carbon so we're taking it out of the atmosphere and we're putting it back in to the ground it's such an, an interesting position to be in because you, well, as being based in, in Nairobi, you are obviously privy to a, a very different agricultural landscape to where I am based in the UK. And the way that our food system has started to be picked apart a bit and, you know, we've got all sorts of movements and people saying you shouldn't eat this, shouldn't eat that. But actually, when you start scaling that or looking at that through the lens that's outside of your own country, it becomes actually, uh, you know, a bit ridiculous to start asking small-scale farmers in, you know, Eastern Africa to stop eating meat or stop eating livestock. It's very context-specific, Harry. You know, it's it's one of those things where where um, it, what might work in Norway or France or or Britain is not going to be the same thing as Kenya or Uganda. Having said that, it's not going to be the same between Norway and France and the UK. Mm-hmm either so one of the things that's been so good that UNEP has been advocating now for about 10 years but has really been accelerated by the summit so the Secretary General's Food Systems Summit which is in September is this need for dialogue so it sounds a bit it sounds a bit fluffy Mm. it sounds a bit sort of you know what does dialogue mean well what dialogue what dialogue does if it's been structured well um, creates a safe space for people to deal with tensions, to deal with opposing views, and to create action plans or strategies that allow everybody around the table to have their say in how that's produced. Mm. And there are 100 plus, well, no, there have been 150 plus dialogues that have happened this, this year on food systems. And those have been, and, and those have turned into a hundred plus national food systems pathway. And it's very important that, and, and there's one in the UK actually, there was, um, is it 
it's a Dimbleby. Is it Henry Dimbleby? Uh, yeah. Yes. yeah. So, yeah. so, so he did the UK's food system strategy, which I think is really good. Which was based on these, this, the I think they called them consultations, and and we're calling them dialogues. Essentially, they're the same thing. It's about saying, you know, okay, so, so if we want to have a food system which is good for farmers, good for people, and good for the planet, well, we're not doing it right now. So, what needs to change? And and if you go in with that sort of very honest perspective, then there will be some honest conversations. Are we eating what we should be eating? Are we eating the right amounts? Are we wasting stuff? Are we because how we consume is very much a feedback loop to how we produce. I mean, why are we in the position now where we have um, hardly any mixed farming systems globally? It's because, you know, there's been this uh, big push in the last 30 years for cheap protein. What were traditionally mixed farms are becoming much more um, focused on what they're doing or, or, or much more specialized. Um, excess land is then traded in for, for you know, um, uh, latest technology on pig production, etc., allowing them that want to grow grain to then buy up the other land. So, so it's about mm. economies of scale but doing it in a very, very specific way. I mean, it's something you touched on at the beginning, actually, with your sort of personal background in, in agriculture and uh, having these, you know, suddenly becoming quite aware of flying fruit and veg around the world. But as, I was wondering, as an organisation, do you look at how, if you're going to unpick food chains and food systems like this and uh, that potentially aren't particularly good for the environment, there's always the the worry that there's a loser in the in the person that's already in this food chain because they suddenly lose their market how do you how do you sort of well compensate for that thank you and and that i think is a great question and something that okay you know when you talk about change then it's very easy to say you know it's a win-win situation whereas in reality there'll all be there'll always be somebody that loses at least partially or during the process of change now that process of change has to be acknowledged and there has to be a just transition from the way we work now, which is highly capitalized, which is um, a certain way of working. It's very much entrenched in the way that um, policy, uh, um, well, it's, it's been shaped by years and years of, of, of a particular policy on you know, productivity, cheap food, etc. And I think we have to except that um, there, will, there will be some losers and we have to acknowledge who those losers are. And it depends which food systems you're talking about. Are you talking about one that is focused upon a consolidated meat supply chain? In that case, who is losing out there? Well, I, I would say it's often the, the producer and those people working in that particular supply chain, low value wages, et cetera, coupled with very much low value of the carcass. So, you know, that, that's not great, is it? So, so if acknowledging, therefore, that these people still need jobs, but those farmers need to get a proper income, then there has to be an understanding of what, do, what, are, those, what are those specific systems that that country or region wants to pursue that will fulfill those three things. So better for people planet and mm. the farmers so understanding that then there could be some kind of plan to put in place to make sure that 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 this just that there is a just tra transition and i think that's up to that's up to all, all of us to acknowledge that and to say just because there'll there'll be some change and that might and those people that might be negatively impacted um would have to be supported that shouldn't be a barrier. No. Uh, and it was, so I was actually just about to ask you, I mean, obviously there's the very high level barriers of, uh, that you've mentioned, uh, you know, treading a little political minefield and uh, uh, intergovernmental stuff. But what do, what do you see as some of the primary or biggest barriers to, to the facilitating this level of change? Probably a couple of steps down from, from governmental. So I think the way that policy is formulated I think is a really important barrier currently to the way that to change essentially. So, so 
farmers get, I think they get their guidance from three things, from the weather, firstly. The second thing is probably policy. And the third thing is market or some kind of order of those that are equally important. Weather is changing constantly. So that's a variable. Policy at the moment very much speaks about productivity and volume. And the third issue around market is also around about the cheapest price, right? So there's this constant feel that, you know, as supermarkets start to grow in the rest of the world, et cetera, then it's all about the price. It's all about the cost. And farmers are feeling extremely pinched. So there needs to be a rethink around a policy that, that has to be focused on creating better outcomes. And there are ways that we can do that. One of them is, for example, by making sure that, that, that good practices are rewarded. And I think having a very good set of methodologies on what does carbon negative mean or what does nature positive mean, I think is, is a very good step towards that. The second one is our food system in general and our markets. I mean, I alluded to the fact that these signals from a policy uh, are taking us down a certain route. Well, the market's doing the same thing. And there's a consolidation with them within that market too you know I, I i i think the bargaining power of a farmer just doesn't really exist as it might have been 50 to 60 years ago um and the fact now that farmers are very much specialized on on one or two commodities is really <laughs> showing us up and saying hang on a second that means farmers are very much dependent on that one particular market and if there's this constant race to kind of get cheaper and cheaper then then you know you know the outcome mm. And then there's this issue of banks. So, you know, banks, they may talk a good game. And I think that's very much appreciated at our COPs. So COP26, there was the finance day yesterday. Um, that was on the 4th of November. And I think that was very much geared about this. You know, what, what can we do to invest or change our portfolio from a certain direction to a better one? However, until banks start to give farmers that space in this highly capitalized industry to innovate and to think, right, what's next? What, what's going to keep us going, not for the next three years, but for the next 30 years as a family farm or as a business, then I think we're going to be struggling. So the, those are three really important parts. And then, so when we talk about just go going back to the second one about markets it's also about this is the tricky one actually because as humans we are hardwired to go for the cheapest and the most calorie laden i think we're not too far away we're just not evolved enough from the cave essentially mm -hmm. you know we're, we're we still you know when when we see those cheaper processed full of fat sugar and salt foods then of course we we feel like we should have them and 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 i think we're hardwired so so we have to see how that plays out how people can change the way they um eat and there are a number of ways you can do that you know by um for a start not subsidizing certain <laughs> types of meat production i'm just saying or why not so you know you you then take away that barrier for change because then there's a reason that, you know, you're not dependent upon do doing a certain thing. Getting people to, to think twice, getting people to waste less food, think about what they're eating more. Mm -hmm. It's a difficult one, though, because food is so embedded in identity and culture these days that people really pin their colours to a mask. And, uh, and if they are certain, well, culture may be slightly differently, but if they are a certain way inclined about their food systems, it's very, very difficult to initiate a conversation about change because uh, a lot of the nuance of discussion and argument has, well, in this country and the Western world, has dropped out of discussions. People aren't willing to uh, open to this dialogue, which you've been mentioning about, because they're so sure that their way is right. It can make it very difficult. Yeah, and absolutely. But how else do we do that, right? So, you know, you can... Think of fiscal measures, you can think of policy measures, but essentially there's also got to be a, a, a shift in demand, right? And, and of course, look, it's not all about the consumer at all. It's absolutely not because, of course, human beings are being bombarded by all sorts of things and the supermarket, I believe, 
probably makes food artificially cheap. So, so you know, it's very difficult, but, but there does have to be a mix. So it's a mixture of all of these things can help, help to create some kind of change. I mean, if, if people want to eat a certain way, that, then absolutely they must be, but we have that there's absolutely allowed to. But the question is, what are the options? And often we find that, that those particular foods that for all the reasons I've said are cheaper are the ones that are, are often consumed the most. And therefore it means then the healthy options and the more diverse options are more expensive. Mm. It'd be interesting, it'd be interesting to know what your thoughts on, uh, well, you take someone like Bill Gates, who's come under quite a lot of criticism about his view of how African agriculture should progress how much involvement should the rest of the world have in, in developing nations uh, path to, to where they end up in terms of food and agriculture. And I was wondering if you think it's easier to have these conversations about what food systems will look like and changing them in nations that aren't, uh, uh, the market isn't as developed as it is in the West. So that's a very interesting question. And I think that there is an opportunity to take a different path but that's challenging so challenging because of all the reasons around the wealth increase the country's getting richer so despite uh, all these environmental crises that we are in middle classes are now growing in quite unlikely places and the research shows and the science shows that that when people go from sort of food scarcity to food abundance, then they will do away with their traditional diets that tend to be, not, not always, but tend to be more sustainable, more healthy for then these aspirational foods um, that, that are um, an indicator of wealth. So, you know, you, you've got that very strong dynamic, which is there. And I think that's, that's a real problem. But I think the advantage that we may have in a country, for example, like Kenya, is that the link between traditional foods and the, if you like, the westernized foods is a lot bigger because the availability of these foods has only really been the last 20 to 25 years. So, you know, you don't have a century or two of, of, of evolving and changing tastes. You know, that there is still that link with the traditional foods but yeah you know uh, maize maize is maize is a great crop of course in many many ways but it's also a very dangerous crop <laughs> um because the focus on it from a policy point of view is destroying landscapes destroying soil and it's not great from a nutritional point of view either so you hear this phrase em empty calories well that is your that is what it is it just fills your stomach um, mm. it, it's like, you know, it's like a pasta or whatever, but, but there is a very, very dangerous trend to focusing just on maize. And that has a very negative impact, as I say, on nutrition. So you, you have the rise of the um, increase of diabetes on the one hand, but on the other hand, you have the full army worm, which is now really kind of endemic uh, in East Africa. And of course, if you just have one particular crop, then then that's a, that that's an extremely risky way to to go about farming. If you do have this risk, and then you bring in the drought, and the fact that soil is just being destroyed by this monocropping is very very difficult. Do you think private companies who deal in agriculture and in, in, in developing nations or or smaller nations are accountable enough for what they push? in the market well in what respect what, what do you well, mean i mean you but, hear uh, we hear you know sort of not quite nightmare stories but sort of bad stories of big agricultural companies selling mm. certain seeds or pushing certain fertilizers or gmos in parts of western northern africa and you know, is there enough accountability for their actions in that in those areas i think i think we have to empower governments to take much more of a to take much more of an interest in how this is working, actually. But when it comes to diversity of seeds, when it comes to regulation and control of pesticides, this, I mean, you know, you've got the codex, the codex 
Alimentarius, which is uh, run by FAO, which, which gives you, if you like, the baseline of, of what should be used and what shouldn't be used. And also the MRLs, the maximum residue level, uh, which, which you can, um, which, you know, food can be consumed at when it comes to pesticides. However, you are dealing with underfunded governments, you're dealing with often organizations or ministries that may uh, have undue influence from some of these countries and and it's all over the world eh? it's not just africa it's no, no all over the world and i think this issue of vested interests i think is very important but you know it's it's about empowering governments to take a little bit more control and say hang on a second this isn't good we we need to bring in this balance and and that's why i'm so excited that's why i'm so excited about the fact that we have had this summit on food systems because what it does is that it doesn't say right we're going to talk about chemicals or we're going to talk about soil or we're going to talk about nutrition it's mm -hmm. it's saying right we need to bring all of these things together and we are going to help you as a country we're going to provide you with the tools to make sure that you can find an, an approach and develop a strategy which brings existing efforts together to become much more integrated in mm -hmm. in how these things are dealt with I think if you don't do that, then then you're just going to be constantly. It's it's like a it's like a whack-a-mole. You know, you're <laughs> sort of running after one thing, or like at a hundred miles an hour, and you think, great, I've I've got the pesticide bit. Oh, you know, what about the fertilizer bit? And then what mm -hmm. about people are having issues with food safety or this or that? So it's 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 a really it's it's about taking a particular lens to food security to food systems, which can then help us to say, right, gosh, well, if you do do this in a holistic way, then you will be able to cover many of your goals. And that could be food security, that could be nature, that could be climate, that could be water, scarcity, that could be all sorts of things. Yeah, no, I think I took the uh, conversation about a slightly negative uh, route there. There's actually a lot of positive and very good things happening across across the world in, in this sort of area and with the work you're doing in the food system summit and you know it's intriguing to see this big green wall project happening across the, mm. the top of africa and yeah. addressing connectivity and you know the, uh, and food supply systems across those borders as well um so i should be i should be the optimist uh more be the optimist because i think if we work in this space collectively we have to be the optimist because we have to say right gosh if we could do this then that's a critical piece of the puzzle so if if we can for example get food production the default of food production to be one that that ensures carbon is sequestered as much as possible possible right so you know um, instead of deep plowing you do use minimal tillage and if that becomes the default, well, that's a big tick. Mm. If we can start to get back to respecting biodiversity and soil, respecting biodiversity, um, mixed cropping, all sorts of these kind of systems, like you've got behind you on your um, background, which you can't yeah. see because, the, because it's a podcast, but um, <laughs> that kind of area of mixed farming where you do have that biodiversity where, where you know, pollinators are valued, then we can still kind of to a certain extent have the same food system we have now from an availability point of view, but it, it will be something that's, that's, that's founded on, on really good sustainable science. So there's this issue about this current one that came out of this tension is about livestock. And we understand that livestock is an, is, is an integral part of our agricultural systems, but only if it's integrated into the way that we produce all of, of our food. If it's not, then we have issues with uh, nutrients being put into waterways, creating dead, dead zones, so killing fish, algal blooms. And you have tons of examples of those all around the world. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, so this doesn't mean that we don't eat pork, but those pigs have to be integrated into a mix, a system, you know, it, it exciting times right but yes. we have to be confident that these that, that that this is actually that by doing this yes it's going to be a bit complicated and it's gonna if you like disrupt that that very kind of specialized way that that we produce and that we produce food now 
but essentially it's going to make us much more resilient to climate change. Mm. I mean, there's been a bit of background noise, I suppose, here in the UK of of our sort of farmers unions and various agriculture unions being a bit disappointed at the amount of space agriculture has been given at COP23. Mm. Mm. Um, And I don't know if that, yeah, if that's uh, enough, if that's fair, or if it's just so embedded in other topics they'll be discussing, or it's hard to see from an outsider's perspective if if that criticism is fair. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how embedded ag- agriculture is in the nationally determined contributions that have been put in. That's something that we'll be doing afterwards to really find out, okay, so so what does it look like in the details? But no, I can understand that. But of course, it's quite nice, actually, because I'm sure 10 years ago, it wasn't on people's radar, right? So, you know, you can already see that these issues are now way up the priority list, that you've got the National Farmers Union banging on the door and saying, hang on a second, you know, we we need to have a say in this. So that's a really positive thing. And I think we are learning. So we're currently learning. So we have been working quite closely with UNFCCC, which is the... UN uh, Secretariat of, of the Climate Change Talks, right? So they organize co- these COPs and they create um, and they support a lot of the data that's being driven that goes into the International Panel for Climate Change, which comes out with these periodic reports. And they are, they built a whole information gathering, data gathering methodology based purely on agriculture rather than food systems so we have to see also how that's going to evolve too so it's 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 a constant journey if you like UNEP in 2017 created every year we do something called the emissions gap report and that particular year we were looking at uh, beyond traditional carbon measurement And one of those was looking at, right, so if we look at current um, carbon measurements when it comes to agriculture, it's across kind of livestock, manure management. I mean, it's basically focused on methane, uh, rice, et cetera, et cetera. So so we know that rice paddies, deep water rice paddies are a very big emitter of methane, which, by the way, is an extremely simple way of avoiding that by draining during the crop life cycle by just basically draining the paddy once but that will break the methane cycle so it's it's a very you know it's so some of these solutions these kind of nature-based solutions are so simple so what this study did in 2017 was that it said right so that's great so we understand that that i can't remember the numbers but a significant amount is needed if we mitigate from those things, you know, like crop production, livestock, etc. And then this it came up. Well, well, what about if we were to look at food waste reduction, changing in diets, etc. And you could see actually that the mitigation potential was greater by looking at those consumption angles than it was by looking at say decreasing methane emissions per kg via feed supplements to cattle to mm. ruminants right so it's 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 changing but it's not changing enough but we just have to comp- we just have to push and and if there are 193 countries that have signed up to the climate to to the climate change talks and to the paris agreement then 150 of those are now going through their food systems pathways. So already we can see that this might be an en- engine from the countryside to start to change how maybe the climate change um, or, or these COPs like the biodiversity COP or the climate change COP start to in- interact. And that's also something at UNEP we're keen to do as well. It seems a bit strange when you work on sectoral stuff like me from an agriculture and a food point of view that we're saying okay well let's just talk about carbon and then next year we talk about biodiversity and then and then we'll talk about chemicals and then we'll talk about this and that it doesn't make sense because because a not not always but if you 
work on climate smart agriculture on the one hand you've got to be clever to make sure then that that's that you're doing it from a nature positive point of view too right so so you are killing many birds with that one stone um yes and and that's something that we're keen at the unit to do is to basically say look it's not just about running after the climate issues in glasgow and then next year at kun kunming because you rightly said cop 15 was successful but it's in two blocks right so the actual negotiation of the post 2020 biodiversity framework is going to be next year okay. in china so so what do we do now so one part of my organization runs off and talks about climate <laughs> and then and then next year another part of my organization runs off and talks about nature and biodiversity yet i'm in the middle of saying but hang on a second look at food systems and agriculture and you can say that this covers both plus it looks at pollution and it looks at chemical use and it looks at x y and z it looks at finance it looks at all sorts of things so so you know it's it's you've got to play that balance that yes we've got to make sure that the cops are good but we've, but we've also got to make sure within UNEP and in the UN system that that we understand that 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 if you get one you'll probably get the other yeah I mean it's very um I think it's very easy to get blinded by your your vision or your quest if it's too focused on one thing and I did see a great illustration of this the other day someone's eyes locked on carbon and all the other yeah. elements biodiversity everything around them yeah. they couldn't see them exactly uh, yeah. I've just Normally, I, I, I wrap up with a question of, of some things that potentially maybe someone has learned from or have uh, gone wrong, which they've progressed in. But I feel like your uh, your way of looking is definitely the internal optimist. So I thought maybe it'd be better to maybe ask, uh, you know, what does success for UNEP look like? And, and, you know, why should people remain positive about climate? So, like I say, we shouldn't just be focusing on climate. Absolutely not, because we understand that, that, that a decline in biodiversity and natural habitat is also going to have an impact on the climate. So it's, it's dealing with the natural climate regulators too. So success from my side would be that we bring agriculture and food as a clear indicator into our work on climate at the international level. So at, at the climate change COPs. It's very much embedded already in the biodiversity COPs and in the desertification COP, there's actually three Rio conventions, um, which are part of this climate change, um, which, which climate change is, is, a, is, is but one. So very much an integrated approach saying, right, we understand that, that building off what's happening in the climate talks, we think we need to do this on biodiversity. And we want, countries to stick to them and to really say right this is our north star and we are going to put in place the the policies and the activities and the incentives to actually achieve these targets that's kind of from a global perspective and then the second point from UNEP is that we really want to see that all the UN system is going in the same direction when it comes to food and agriculture and I think the system or the excuse me, the summit, the Secretary General's summit that we had last month or in September is an illustration of what we can do when there's political will. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping, therefore, then that, that, that this starts the process of really creating momentum for a new normal. And that new, new normal is that we are not killing our pollinators and going down the purely technical a technological route to kind of deal with that particular crisis instead of going back a more sort of um, nature-based route, which is saying, right, well, let's, you know, let's bring biodiversity back so that we, ins that there's an incentive for bees to, to, to become as prolific as they were. Mm -hmm. So that's just an example. And, and, and um, I think we're getting there. That's fantastic. Um, thank you for that summary, James. I think it's been absolutely uh, well, extremely insightful for me anyway. And I think for, for people who, who do listen, it's going to be very useful, you know, especially with the backdrop that's going on to actually understand a bit more about how these conferences work, what the role of the different units within the UN are, and, and actually 
highlight, even though potentially I've been a little bit negative, but how, the, you know, the fantastic positive work that um, the UN and, and UNEP are doing. And, and it's great to hear that someone from one of those organizations is, is so positive about where we're going and where we're headed. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And, and look, stubborn optimism, Harry, is the only way we can do this work. Because, yeah. at the end, because at the end of the day, if you fight the good fight, then, then what else is there left? You just have to make sure that, you know, <laughs> you're fighting the good fight. And, and I think that comes through these cops. That yes. really does. Well, thank you again for your time. And hopefully speak again soon. Thanks so much, Harry. Thank you so much for joining me today for the Regen Agri podcast. To learn more on what we've talked about in this episode, please find the links in the show notes. If you'd like to know more about how the Regen Agri initiative can help you on your regenerative journey through advisory services, monitoring of on-farm data, regenerative certification, or carbon verifications, please visit regenagri.org. There, you can also check out our case studies and articles and gain access to our digital hub for free insight and advice. Alternatively, follow us on Twitter at regenagri underscore CU or search for regenagri on LinkedIn. Join us again next month. And in the meantime, you can subscribe, rate and review us from the Apple platform or find us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.